Good morning, everybody. How you doing today? Welcome to Joy Church. Come on, shout at me a little bit. Woo! Good to see you guys. Hey, I want to give a special greeting to Joy Church UO. They are uh, having their grand opening over there, so we're so glad you guys are with us. Come on, let's say welcome to UO. Good to have you guys with us. And uh, UO, you guys get pizza after your service today. So Regal's disappointed, but you guys here at Regal, we get popcorn and you can watch a movie after church. I didn't say I was paying for it, just to clarify, but we do have that. So we're just so glad to be launching UO and so excited for everybody here together today as we launch a new series called You Can't Say That in Church. Somebody say, you can't say that. You can't say that. How many of you have seen some of the videos and ads and things we've been putting out on Facebook? Three people. That's awesome. We're excited. That's working. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Um, but we're, we're starting this new series, and I am incredibly excited for this new series because what we're going to be doing is taking all the big questions or some of the big questions, maybe not all the big questions, but some of the big questions and objections and problems that people have with faith or potentially have with faith, and we're bringing them to Sunday mornings. And so here's my commitment to you. If, if you are a skeptic, if you are, uh, even if you're a believer and you've ever felt silenced or censored or shut down, married men know what that feels like. Come on, man. I'm just kidding. I'm playing. I'm just messing. I'm getting, my wife's divorcing me after the service. Okay. Um, I'm just teasing. But if you've ever felt shut down with these deep questions that censored or shame, my commitment is that's not going to happen to you. We're going to talk about the deep questions, and, and we're going to talk about uh, things like why is there suffering and evil in the universe, and how could God be good and allow that to happen? We're going to talk about hell. Heck, we're going to even talk about politics, and people are like, oh, no, what's going to happen on that day? Well, you got to come and find out, but we're going to talk about these kinds of things. Now, here's my, my disclaimer to everyone. Um, we're not going to be able to cover the depth and breadth of these topics in a 30-minute talk. So I'm going to preach for two hours. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. You can wake up. It's okay. Um, we're not going to be able to cover the full, you know, gamut of, of issues in a 30-minute talk. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to do our best to hit some of the deep things and cover some of those um, during the 30-minute talk. But then during the week, we have two things that we're going to do. We're going to provide a resources page. So this week later on, if you go to joyuge.info or joyugene.com, we will have a resources page available with links to books podcasts, uh, articles, things that you can read to get more information about these topics. That's cool, right? Yeah. And then the second thing we're going to do is we're, we have an email address. It's can't say that, can't say that at joyeugene.com. And if you send an email to can't say that at joyeugene.com, you can put in a question, uh, maybe something that comes out of the messages today or any of the messages during this next six weeks, um, or just a question that you have re regarding faith, life, spirituality, those kind of things. And you can send that to can't say that at joyeugene.com. And we are going to cover that during the week. We're going to do a podcast or a, uh, some kind of a roundtable sit down. So what we normally do is called the Monday moment. We're going to move it to maybe midweek, midweek moment this week. And we'll take on some of those tough questions. So how many of you are excited about this series and what we're doing? I'm really excited about it. Uh, and I want to say welcome to any of you that are skeptics. You know, we have specifically invited people uh, that have questions about God, about Christianity to come and, and come to church today and be a part and bring those questions. And we're going to be covering those for the next six weeks. And I want to say welcome to you, uh, to the skeptics. Welcome to you that have questions. Welcome that maybe are kicking the tires on God, kicking the tires on Christianity. Maybe you even have some 
visceral reactions against uh, faith. And we're going uh, to talk about those things over the next six weeks. But I want to tell you that God is not scared of doubt. And so if you've ever felt like, man, I have these doubts, so I'm not welcome to come. No, God is not scared of doubt. Truth is not intimidated by honest questions. Come on, somebody. You know, the thing is that I believe that Christianity is true. And I don't mean like true, like spiritually true. Well, it's true in my heart. I don't mean relativistically true. Well, it's true for me, but maybe not for you. No, I'm not talking about that. The Christian faith is either true or it's false. And that's what we're talking about, that we believe that Christianity is true, not just relativistically or spiritually, but actually that the Christian faith is actually not just a religion. It's actually the the true story of reality. Okay, it's the true story of reality. And we're going to talk about that this week. But today, I want to deal with a common misconception of faith, a caricature of faith. Uh, I think this guy puts it the best. His name is Richard Dawkins. And Richard Dawkins is an evolutionary biologist at Oxford University. He's very smart. And Richard Dawkins wrote a book several years ago, many years ago, called The God Delusion. How many of you have heard of that book, The God Delusion? And Richard Dawkins, I think he says it very well. He gives us this common perspective of those that would have faith in in God or or any kind of faith. He says, faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith is belief in spite of, even perhaps because of, the lack of evidence. Now, Richard Dawkins says it in this amazing British accent, and I, I won't even try to do it. No, I won't. Okay. I thought about it. And, and this is a common caricature of faith. It's a common perspective of faith, where faith is someone clinging blindly to a belief. And it's, it's illogical, it's contradictory, it's unscientific, and as he says, it's delusional. And I think a lot of people have this perspective of faith. And maybe they come and they say, you know, I like the idea of God. I like the idea of Jesus. I like the idea of love and forgiveness and some of the stuff that we see within the Christian faith. But for me, I'm the kind of person that I need to put my hands on it. Uh, I need to be able to, to see it or, uh, or feel it or hear it. Like it needs to be tangible. I'm, I'm a scientific person. I need evidence. How many of you would say, hey, that's actually how I am. I need evidence. This is where I'm at. I need evidence. And there's this caricature of faith that it's illogical, it's contradictory. And so people have this problem with this kind of a representation of faith. Maybe they've even seen it represented in Christians and in churches and and in their life. And it's this kind of faith that is completely unsupportable. It just exists in the same category as Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny. I think Santa Claus is real. So let's just hold on right there for one second. But but it sort of exists in this fantasy realm. It's a fairy tale. And and that's the kind of faith that is caricatured often. Have you encountered this before? Right? But you know, that's not a biblical faith. It's not the Christian faith. The Christian faith is not this pie in the sky, delusional, I just believe because I do, and na-na-na-na-na-na, you can't catch me, kind of a faith. That actually the Christian faith is based in science and in evidence and in history and in tangible reality that Christianity is either true actually or it's false actually, but there's not this category of faith that sort of exists in the realm of uh, the Easter Bunny in in La La Land. Christianity is not anti-intellectual. Christianity is not anti-scientific and it's not illogical. And actually, I'm here to tell you today, even though I'm going through puberty and my voice is cracking... 
Thank you. I finally got a laugh. I got to warm this crowd up, guys. Yeah. I'm here to tell you today that these pursuits, the pursuit of the mind and logic and science, they're, they're actually rooted in a universe in which Christianity is true. And I'll talk about this today. I want to come against this caricature. You see, everybody believes in something. Everybody is coming to the table with a worldview, with a system of, of commitments and beliefs and that informs the way they see reality, that informs how they answer the questions about God and life and spirituality. Everyone has a worldview. A worldview is not uh, what is actually real. It's just what you think is real. It's what you see. It's your system of beliefs and assumptions and biases through which you interpret reality. And every person has a worldview. And every worldview is tasked with the exact same thing, that it has to describe and give an accurate perspective of the universe, or it has to try. It has to try to answer what I call the big three questions. The big three questions. And th these three questions are this. Number one, what is real? What is real? And this is the question of existence, of origin. It's the question known in, 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 in philosophy and science as the question of ontology. And it, it goes like this. Why is there something rather than nothing? You see, the fact is we exist. We are here. Uh, and, and this has actually been debated in, in philosophy historically. Rene Descartes, you can look into Cartesian philosophy where he said, people say it like this, I think, therefore I am. How many of you have heard that? What Descartes actually said is, I doubt, therefore I am. And what he said is this, if you can even doubt your own existence, that means you have to exist in order to have that doubt. And you're like, duh, we exist. But people talked about this, right? Do we actually exist? Yes, we do. Wave at me if you exist this morning. Hallelujah. All right. Um, and and, and we, we are here. And so philosophers came up with this deep question of, of reality. Why are we here? Why is there something? Why is there a material universe of space time? And why are we as human beings here? Why do we exist? Why is there something rather than nothing? And you're like, what's the big deal about this? Well, every worldview has to answer this question. Every worldview has to answer this question. Whether you are a person who's a Christian or an atheist or, or you're like undecided or whatever, or you're a Beavers fan, that's a worldview, you know? Um, you have to answer this question. What is real? Why is there something rather than nothing? The second big question is this. What is true? This is the question of epistemology, our system of thought. How do we trust our thinking? How do we know things are true? It's the question of reason and the mind. Why do we and why should we trust our thoughts to be true? See, we're all sitting here and we're listening to this message and we're thinking about it, and all of us are making an assessment right now. Is, is what's being spoken, is it real? Is it right? Is it true? Is it, is it uh, correct? Is it accurate? And we're trusting that our thoughts that we are thinking right now are giving us an accurate depiction of the world around us. How many of you woke up today and were like, man, I wonder if I'm just a brain floating in a vat? Did anybody think that today? That's how I feel after a duck's loss, you know, just questioning my existence. But scientists and philosophers have asked this question. How, how do we know if we're thinking thoughts, which we are thinking thoughts, not everybody, there's somebody asleep in the back, but we're, we're thinking thoughts, I'm just playing. We're thinking thoughts. How do we know that our thoughts are giving us an accurate picture of reality? Where do we get a basis for reason and rationality at all, for logic? And every worldview has to answer this question. And the third question is this, what is right? It's the question of morality. It's the question of of taking the answer to number one and two, how do I live my life? And 
What's the difference between right and wrong? And how do I know what is right? And how do I know what is wrong? And is right and wrong just about how I feel about something? So, so if I say, well, I'm going to steal your car, and they're like, you can't do that. Well, why? Well, because it's wrong. Well, I don't accept your morality. And this becomes problematic, doesn't it? How many of you are glad that people tend to agree on right and wrong? Generally, right? If your neighbor comes and, you know, is like stealing your stuff, you're like, I believe in morality. I'm not a relativist right now. Stop. That's mine. My car, you can steal. It's a 2003 VW Passat. The insurance would probably be better than what the vehicle is. So go for it. But right and wrong, what is right? Every worldview has to make an account, has to give an answer for this question. And every worldview does give an answer to this question. It's just either logical and sound and structured and supportable by evidence or it's not. And it falls apart. So if you're thinking of faith, the Christian faith specifically in this caricature mindset of, well, it's just believing without evidence. No, we have to go back and say, actually, every worldview, including the Christian worldview, has an equal standing in the marketplace of ideas and needs to be evaluated on the basis of its answers to the deep questions of life. So where do we go next from there? Well, for me, I believe that Christianity is the best explanation for the universe that I actually live in. Not just I'm not talking about just an intellectual answer. I'm talking about a holistic answer for, for me, and not just for me subjectively or relativistically, no, but for the universe that I can see with my eyes and that I can experience both the outside, the material universe, the, the universe of space and time and atoms and all that kind of stuff, right? The material, physical universe, but also the inside, my heart, my emotions, my thoughts, that Christianity gives the best explanation based on the evidence. I found the Christian faith to be scientific, found it to be reasonable in that it actually gives an, a, an answer for why reason is trustworthy at all, why we can trust our thoughts. And I found it to be ethical in that it gives me a moral framework by which I can make choices consciously and live as a citizen of the human race and, and, and operate effectively and actually not break everything with my choices and my actions. And so it gives me an ethical system. So I would say this to you, if you're, if you're looking at faith and you're saying, no, it's just belief uh, apart from evidence. No, for me, I'm a Christian because of the evidence, not in spite of it. It just flies in the face of that caricature of faith that Richard Dawkins describes. I love it. There's a debate between another Oxford professor. In case you thought only, uh, only atheists were smart Oxford professors, one of the most brilliant Christians in our age is a man named John Lennox, who's a professor of mathematics, which is a really smart thing to be a professor of uh, at Oxford University. And John Lennox and Richard Dawkins were having this lively spirited debate. It was great. And they're both very respectful to one another and talking back and forth. And Richard Dawkins goes off and he's attacking Lennox's beliefs. And Lennox says, uh, in a beautiful Irish brogue, he says, uh, Richard, I don't believe in the same God that you don't believe in. Because Dawkins is caricaturing. He's, he, he's, he's painting a picture of a God that isn't what Christianity actually believes in. So it's important that we break down this character and say, no, our faith is not, it's not floating in thin air oh, I just believe, I just believe. No, we need to get rooted in why we believe what we believe. Come on, somebody. How many think that even as a follower of Christ, it's important that in this day and age, you be able to explain, look, my feet of faith are not floating in thin air. There's some evidence, there's some history, there's science, there's philosophy, there's reason. And I've made a conscious choice based on evidence to believe what I believe. 
See, what this is going to do two things. If you're a skeptic, I hope this opens your mind and you're like, okay, I haven't really thought about this, that I need to look at Christianity as an intellectual uh, faith. I need to look at Christianity as a historical faith. I need to look at it as a scientific faith and not just as the Easter bunny and Santa Claus and sort of delusional. But if you're a believer, this is going to do something for you. It's going to help you to understand why you believe what you believe and give you some concrete things to plant your feet on. And so we're going to move on uh, today. So we talked about these answers in worldview, and I'm going to bring it down, make it a little bit more concrete, but we're going to stay abstract. How many people that are like philosophically minded are loving this right now today? They're like, I like it. I like it. My brain's going everywhere. Uh, all of you at UO who are like starting classes this week, you can be like, I'm so smart. I was, I was in this lesson and I heard things like ontology. He said the word epistemology. You can take that back to your class and use that. So every worldview answers these big three questions and it leads back to a first Uh, a priori, which means before, in the, uh, it, before the evidence, so a first fact that everything follows. In Christianity, it's God's existence. Christians accept God's existence and interpret reality in light of God's existence. Now, a lot of people would say, see, that's what I'm talking about. It's blind faith. You just believe in God. And then, uh, you, then you make up this whole thing after that. No, it's actually in reverse, that when you follow the money, when you follow the evidence and you begin to examine what's taking place in the human heart, you begin to examine what's taking place in human interactions in society, and you begin to examine the material universe, the space-time universe, you see that there are fingerprints everywhere that lead you somewhere. And like Hansel and Gretel, you're following crumbs. And, and that, the good thing is at the end of the line, it's not a witch in a candy house, it's God. Maybe God has a candy house. I don't know. We're not going to talk. That'll be week four. We'll talk about God's candy house. But you're following these, these trails of evidence, these lines of reasoning and, and science, and all things towards something. And, and what we find is that the beginning of Christianity is a God who exists. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. If you can accept those words of scripture, you should have no problem with the rest. In the beginning, God created. You see, God is the first fact. He's the creator of the physical universe. He's the answer to what is real. Why is there something rather than nothing? The answer is because God wanted there to be something rather than nothing. Because there was a something before there was a nothing. And, and we'll talk about this scientifically and, and, and you'll understand in the next several weeks why this is a, a scientific belief to accept a spiritual uncaused cause. That even Greek philosophers, they reasoned back and they said, look, if the, the universe is a succession of dominoes falling of physical causes, then we have to find some cause that is itself uncaused. And they said that must be the unmoved mover. Aristotle came up with that. That's not even Christianity yet. What is the unmoved mover? God is the answer to what is real. He's the, the logical mind behind reason. Why do we trust our thinking? Why do we trust our thoughts? Because there are laws of logic that are the byproduct of a logical mind. I want you to imagine with me for a second that you go over to Florence and you're spending this lovely day at the beach and you go down and in the sand, you see your name written. Your, your first, your middle, your last name. It's, this, it's written out there. How many of you would, would see that and say, oh man, the crabs are really um, evolving and like, like, be honest, what would your first thought be? It would be that someone that knew you, someone that had intelligence, that if you find the evidence of intelligence, then there was an intelligent mind. That's a, that is a following the money. It's following the trail of evidence. Now, 
Why then, if you apply this philosophically, when we find the evidence of logic and reason, do we assume that there was no logical mind behind it all? So again, reason itself is rooted in the Christian faith in the existence of God, the logical mind behind reason, and he's the authority behind morality. In other words, why do we know this is right, this is wrong? You know, if you say Hitler was a jerk, if you think Hitler was a jerk, join the club. The Holocaust was wrong. Racism is wrong, right? Fanny packs are wrong. Let's just be honest. (laughs) They're just wrong. Have you seen the new dad bod fanny pack? I don't need it because I have a dad bod. So if you, I could just pull my shirt up. I won't do that, UO. Do not worry. I'll do it at second service here at Regal. Okay. There are things that are wrong. There are things that are right. September 9-11, blowing up buildings and killing people. What is it? It's wrong. Well, how do you know that? And what gives you the right to tell me what's wrong? And what gives you the right to tell me what's right and how to live my life? And we say, well, I, well, I, I don't know. Well, in the Christian worldview, the answer is that God is the authority behind morality. He says, out of my nature and character, I have, I have established the basis of ethics and morality, the laws of morality. But for the atheist, if you, if you just throw God out of the equation and say, ah, faith, it's delusional, it's unscientific. Okay, your turn. What is the first fact in your worldview? Well, it's the universe. Well, where did it come from? Well, it's always been here. Wrong. Big Bang Theory completely blows that up. We can trace back that the universe had a beginning. Okay, start over. All right, well, then the universe is self-existent. So you believe in a self-existent, eternal, infinite uh, physical creation. Sure. Okay, did you know that actually is not scientific because it breaks the laws of thermodynamics? That energy cannot be created or destroyed, and it always runs downhill. The law of increasing entropy, all energy is becoming less useful as it goes forward. So you see, right away in this worldview, you have to say, we're looking at evidence and comparing things. Is it scientific? Isn't it? But you can't just throw faith out the window like it's a joke, because you have to answer these questions. Every worldview does. For the atheist, the first fact is a self-existent physical universe. And reason, why we trust our thoughts and our thinking and morality, right and wrong, these have to be just outworkings of physical processes. So if, you're, if you throw God out of the equation, then you have to accept that the physical universe is all there is and what you call thoughts are just chemical reactions firing off in your brain. So why do you even trust them? Why would they describe reality as opposed to being that brain floating in a vat? This is why the Eastern religions, they threw out, they didn't believe in God. They didn't have a basis for a reason. So they said, we're gonna throw out any sort of a test for this. So the universe is like floating on the back of a turtle and they made this absurd claim, not because they really think that, but what they're saying is it's illogical and we can't figure it out. Every worldview has to answer these questions. Yeah, but faith is delusional. Hmm. No, that's actually some weight behind some of the claims that you find in scripture. I think that if we look at it, that a lot of times we actually reject things because of our emotions. And we reject things actually more like the caricature of faith. When we throw God out, it's maybe because we don't want him to be in our business. Like if there's a real God and he exists and there's a problem there, isn't there, for what happens. So every worldview has to answer these questions. And then the question becomes for us, what worldview makes the most sense of the evidence that we find? And so I want to give you today some Three, three pieces of evidence that for me establish a framework for my Christian faith, why I am a Christian. And here's the thing, if you're skeptical and you wanna pull apart Christianity, these are great places to start because 
And if it's evidence for and you pull it apart, then it's evidence against, right? And I want to encourage you to do that, to pry in, to pull up the stones, to dig out and find uh, the assumptions, find the problems. Because if you do that, I believe that if, if it's true, you're going to find that it's true. So let's look at some categories of evidence for the Christian faith and examine it to see if it's true or false. The first one I would give you today is the evidence from history. Now, half the people fell asleep because a lot of people get bored with history, but I think this is going to be exciting. And I love history, so I'm sorry. I love it. All of Christianity, it hangs on one significant historical moment, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because if we find Jesus' bones, like if the resurrection is bunk, then it's all over. Let's get out of here. Let's go home. Did you know there's actual football games on right now? How many of you are with me? Like if we find Jesus' bones, let's blow out of here, man. Let's go to Buffalo Wild Wings. Let's just do what we want to do, right? But there's a problem. See, if Jesus actually did rise from the dead, if, if there's truth here and Jesus rose from the dead, then we have to look at his claims who he claimed to be, what he claimed, what are the ramifications, and we have to take it seriously. C.S. Lewis said this, he said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Meaning you can't just be like, ah, religion is sort of over here in this category, but here's my real life. No, like if Jesus rose from the dead, we got to Because people don't just rise from the dead. And you're like, well, yeah, but that's just a fairy tale. Like, it's actually no, no. There's, there's some concrete historical evidence, very convincing evidence that Jesus actually did live, that he was who uh, the, the, the gospel writers describe him to be, and that he did die and was raised from the dead. And it's either tangibly true or false. Listen, one of Jesus' disciples, he was describing the attitude that early Christians had about this that the Christian faith is rooted in history. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, he says, We proclaim to you the one who existed, okay, from the beginning, whom we have heard, whom we have seen. We saw him with our own eyes and we touched him with our own hands. He's the word of life. This one who is life itself was revealed to us and we have seen him. And now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the Father and then he was revealed to us. We proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard. Early Christians weren't like, ah, we think we, no, we saw him after he died and was raised from the the dead. We touched him so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that you may fully share our joy. In other words, join the party because Jesus rose from the dead and it's awesome. And we saw it with our own eyes. These early Christians, they weren't just dealing with the philosophical or metaphorical Jesus. There's a a huge movement, or there has been a movement in America, I think it's called the Jesus Seminar, that wants to sort of take away the historical Jesus. Well, was he really real? Are the gospel writers, did they really get it right? And all this kind of stuff. And why do they they wanna come against the historicity of Christ? It's because if you remove this, you take away the foundation stone of the Christian faith, which is that God showed up in human flesh that in the person of Christ and Jesus, he died on the cross and he rose from the dead. And it becomes this, this linchpin in the whole thing. But these early Christians, they were all about history and reality, not delusion, not like just believe, 
It's spiritual, it's metaphorical, give you warm fuzzies on the inside. No, they believed in Jesus historically, in reality. Let me give you some arguments for this, for the historicity. Number one, every one of Jesus' disciples, his original 12, one of them kind of messed up, Judas, so we'll leave him off. But the other 11... And Paul, who was kind of added in, and Mattathias, who they added in, these, all of these disciples, they affirmed their belief in Jesus theologically, but not just theologically, in reality, in history. They affirmed the belief in the resurrection and the ramifications of that to their death. And I don't mean to their death like five years later, six years later. No, like some of them got old, but every one of them was martyred for their faith. Now, it's one thing to be like, I think I saw him. And maybe I did. Okay, I'm going to throw you off this building and beat you to death with clubs. Now what do you think? I'm going to reevaluate my life choices. Right? There's a book by Stuart McBurney. It's called The Search for the Twelve Apostles. And if you read this book, it tells you the, the story of all of these guys. They went and had lives. Thomas went to the nation of India. It wasn't called India then, but he went to that area. He was speared to death. Javelins were thrust into his body. I want you to think about the first javelin. Hey, do you still believe in Jesus? No. I feel like you put holes in my argument and my stomach. Like, how do you hold on to this if it's just delusion, if it's, just, if it's not true? And every one of them, and many, 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 many Christians went to their death. They were actually put to death for their belief in the resurrection of Jesus. Number two, Jesus' own family believed in his divinity, that he was God and his resurrection. Now I want you to think about this. Think about your family, your brother, your mom, your sister. I mean, imagine I'm thinking about my brother, Johnny, and Johnny's awesome. But if Johnny walked in and was like, Jake, I'm God. I'd be like, you're a moron. I'm the oldest brother. If anyone's like God, it's me. Shoot. If your brother or your sister, like, come on, somebody. That's unbelievable. And yet Jesus' brother, James, his book is in the Bible where he's like, yeah, Jesus is God. That's his brother. That's ridiculous. Unless it's true. What did James have to see? What did he have to touch? What did he have to hear to go? My brother is God. And he rose from the dead. He also does miracles. He makes awesome wine. So... Jesus, whatever you want to be, just keep doing it. No, James was the guy that was chucked off a building. Do you believe in your brother? Yes. Chucked him off the temple and then they beat him to death with clubs. I'm spitting because I'm so excited about that. (laughs) Not that, exactly. It's just that how how do you reconcile that unless there was something there? Number three, there were hundreds of known eyewitnesses. Paul references this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 6. He said that 500 saw Jesus post-resurrection. And he says, most of them are still alive. Some have died since this time. This is about 30 years later, 25, 30 years later when this letter is written in 1 Corinthians. But he says, there's 500 people that I know of that saw Jesus post-resurrection. And you can talk to them. In the New Testament, people are named. There's a guy named Rufus. And they, name, they call him by name. Why? So that people could be like, oh, we know that guy. We'll go ask him. Now, I want you to understand something. This was so widely broadcast that even, and I'll get into this in a second, but even the secular world that did not accept Jesus as God and did not accept his claims, they didn't deny that Christians believed this in a historical way. But Jesus was seen by eyewitnesses 
Over 500. The next piece of evidence is this. It's attested to in secular sources. So if anybody comes and says, well, you know, these Christians, they believed in Jesus, so they had a purpose. They had a theological purpose. They wanted to start this new religion so they could be put to death. Doesn't make any sense, but whatever. You were just holding on to your beliefs so you can get eaten by a lion. You're right. That's exactly why I'm holding this belief, because I desire to be kitty food. Anyways, the secular sources in this time period, historians and different people, they attested what was going on. In the Roman world, you have Tacitus, a Roman historian. He talks about Jesus, a historical Jesus of Nazareth. You have Suetonius. You have Pliny. He was a Roman official, Pliny the Younger. Uh, the, even, even Roman emperors, Trajan and Hadrian, they make mention of Jesus and Christianity years and years later, that there was something historically that happened, and even the secular world attested to it. One of the, the, the guys that wrote about Jesus and, and what his followers believed was Josephus. Flavius Josephus was a Jewish historian. He traveled in the company of the Romans, and Josephus, you can have, we actually have some of his writings, and Josephus says this. He says, at this time, there was a man who was called Jesus. His conduct was good. He was known to be virtuous, and many people from among the Jews and other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified, and he died. And those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. Now, this is not a believer. This is somebody who does not believe. But he's saying, look, this is what happened. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was thought to be the Messiah. In other words, I don't know if I accept this, but this is what his followers believe, and this is what we know happened with this guy, Jesus. People think he's the Messiah. They think he's legit, that he's the real deal because these events are historical. And last, the resurrection of Jesus, one of the, the pieces of evidence, last one I'll give you from history is this. It would have been one of the worst conspiracies ever planned in human history, the most poorly conceived, easily broken open and seen the truth. It would have been awful. They mess every single thing up. If the disciples were like, hey, we're going to have a conspiracy, and obviously there's no motive because they're going to all die for this. It doesn't make them acceptable in their society. But let's say they, they figure out they're going to have this false faith or religion. So they come together and they're like, let's conspire. Uh, let's find a secret room and let's get robes and cool signet rings because you got to do that if you're doing a conspiracy. And let's plan to like, tell people that Jesus rose from the dead. They're like, sweet, we're all in. Everybody put your signet rings together. Cool. So they do this and they have this plot. And then they decide, okay, let's all, let's all mess up our eyewitness accounts and have dif different details. No, you wouldn't do that. You'd get together and you'd be like, okay, how many angels? There's two or one. No, we're going to say two. All right, two. Okay, who was the first person to see? Oh, it was this person. And, and what you see in the Gospels is actually just like a real eyewitness account is there's differences in the details. They don't contradict, but there's differences. It's like if a, if a police officer comes to the scene of a crime and there's 18 witnesses, and if all the stories are the same, they, they tag that and say, this is, something's wrong. Because when real people see real things taking place in real time, they mess stuff up. And in the Gospels, you see this accurate, it's like a real eyewitness report where they actually mix up some of the details. And again, this doesn't contradict, I'm not... A, Attacking scripture. We'll talk about the Bible and, and that in a couple weeks. Then they have women find Jesus. The first person to see Jesus raised from the dead, resurrected, is Mary of Magdalene, who was a prostitute. Now you're like, so what? Well, at this time period in history, a woman couldn't even give testimony in court. So you could do something brazenly and openly, and if it was only a woman that saw you, 
and she testified against you, they'd be like, sorry, inadmissible in court. She's a woman, which is absolutely absurd in case anyone thinks that we're (laughs) promoting that. We're not. That's ridiculous. It actually shows you how much God elevates women by allowing a woman to be the first one to attest to the resurrection of Jesus. But again, on this conspiracy side of things, the worst conspiracy, details move, um, you have all these stories going on. It's a woman that first sees Jesus. It would have been a, a, a terrible conspiracy. All they needed to do was find Jesus' body. The scriptures even talk about it in the gospels. The, the Jews had to say, how are we gonna make this like, seem like legit? And so they end up paying these guards to say that they fell asleep and that the disciples came and stole his body. I mean, you could track this down. Everybody cared. You gotta understand, it would be like, Every single person in this culture and society cares about these things that are taking place. The Romans and Jesus and everything going on. And then they just are like, yeah, he rose from the dead and people are seeing him. Everyone would be trying to figure this out. You can't dupe people like that. And so those are five pieces of historical evidence of why I accept the Christian faith. Now, again, not in any means exhaustive, but we'll talk more about that. But how many of you find those to be helpful? It's not a caricature. It's not, I just believe because Jesus is cool. No, there's evidence. You can go in and you can, you can research this yourself. I encourage you to do so. Number two, evidence from the area of reason, reason in the mind. You realize a universe without God is logically indefensible because the very idea of a standard of logic cannot exist. In that universe, logic becomes per, just personal, abstract, and it's non-binding if what we call thoughts are just chemical reactions taking place in a piece of matter in our skull, why would we trust them about anything? C.S. Lewis, again, he talks about this, and it's a brilliant argument. He says, supposing there was no intelligence behind the universe, no creative mind. In that case, nobody designed my brain for the purpose of thinking. It is merely that when the atoms inside my skull happen for physical or chemical reasons to arrange themselves in a certain way, this gives me as a byproduct the sensation I call thought. But if so, how can I trust my own thinking to be true? Following this? He says, it's like upsetting a milk jug and hoping that the way it splashes itself will give you a map of London. And those of you that have been to London realize that London maps do look like milk spilled um, on a piece because it's crazy. But if I can't trust my own thinking, of course I can't trust the arguments leading to atheism and therefore have no reason to be an atheist or anything else. Unless I believe in God, he says, I cannot believe in thought. So I can never use thought to disbelieve in God. Game, set, match, I say, sir. <laughs> There's arguments against this, but the, the, the underlying premise is sound. If our brains are just matter and it's just atoms and chemical reactions happening, why do we assume that they tell us an accurate story of reality? When you take away the reference point, you can't measure stuff. And so you have to come up with an answer outside of the physical universe. And what it ends up being is self-refuting and illogical. And yet faith is what is called illogical. And I've met people who have faith that are illogical. But I know that because my brain might actually at time to time be working. Why? Because there is a standard of reason. There is a lawgiver in the areas of science and a lawgiver in the areas of reason and a lawgiver in the areas of morality. And that's how we know. It's how we can measure. So for me, that's a powerful evidence for my faith. And then lastly, the evidence of experience. See, it wouldn't be enough for me if it was like, well, people thousands of years ago thought Jesus rose from the dead. And yeah, it's logical. 
But for me, it's also about the fact that in meeting Jesus and having a relationship with him, it's changed my life. That the person I am is awful without Jesus. And that even on my best day, when I try to do everything right, I still screw up and I know it and I need something to help me. And so when I met Jesus as a 15-year-old, I mean, I met Jesus as a four-year-old, but when I was older, I had a real encounter with God at 15 years old and I knew I was screwed up and I needed something. And when Jesus came into my life, everything began to change. And that's powerful evidence to me because my life with and without God are two totally different things. And let me just tell you, faith in Christ is transformational. It's not just informational. See, you can believe as an atheist, you can believe as a, as a Buddhist or a, a Hindu and maybe just get information. But when you actually put your faith in Christ, you begin to change. There's actually something real that happens. See, the critical question for any worldview isn't just the what is real, what is uh, true, what is right. It's this question, does this worldview work? Is it livable? What does it leave me to do and to go? Can I live it out and see for millions of people that have placed their faith in Jesus? The answer is it absolutely does. Faith in Jesus gives us the intellectual framework by which we can observe reasonably the world around us and trust our thoughts. It gives us the deep answers to the questions of origin. Why am I here? Do I have purpose? Why do I like things that are beautiful and how do I know they are? What is what, the answers on the outside and on the inside? And Christianity gives us a real relationship with our creator and it fulfills us in this deep way that every person has a deep existential longing to know their creator. And the Christian faith gives us that, not just intellectually, but actually, not just in the land of the la-la land and like land of the Easter bunny, but know that Jesus is real, that you can have a relationship with him. And so my challenge to you today as we conclude, as we start this series and we talk about the deep questions, maybe we're not gonna have the best answers. Maybe you're gonna hear an answer and you're not gonna like it. But what I wanna challenge every one of us to do, whether you are a skeptic or you are a follower of Christ, is to open your heart and mind over the next five weeks. I ask you to doubt your doubts to ask questions, to turn over the rocks because truth is not intimidated by honest questions. It's not intimidated by even doubt. And as we unpack these things, I wanna ask every one of us to be open to let God speak to us because if he's really there, then he will.